back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful that you've joined us. In the spirit of having a wide variety of guests on the show, I'm pleased to welcome Margie D., a woman whom I first met in a London-based Zoom meeting early last year and have gotten to know in the many Zoom meetings we've shared since then. She was among the first people to greet me in that meeting, and we've mostly gotten to know each other during the 10 to 15 minutes of fellowship we both enjoy prior to each meeting. Originally from New England, but having lived in Great Britain for a number of years, Margie has over 41 years of sobriety. Having faced many obstacles to getting to AA and subsequent challenges to sobriety during her four decades in the program, Margie has remained as passionate and committed to the program as one can be. In all those years, the longest she's ever gone without a meeting was 10 days during the birth of her children. The simple program she was first told about by the frigging old dudes, as she describes them, is the same program she has followed over these many years. It's also the same program she has freely given to others in frequent sponsorship and a wide variety of service commitments she has fulfilled since first getting into AA in the fall of 1979. As you listen to this episode of AA Recovery Interviews, take note of Margie's good humor and enthusiasm for Alcoholics Anonymous and her nonstop work in the program, and you will learn exactly how someone can put together so many years of sobriety. And whether you've been sober a long time or a short time, whether you're brand new or have returned to AA after a relapse, Margie's message of hope, faith, and trust is one you can take to the bank, uh, the spiritual bank, that is. And whether you're listening while you're driving, multitasking, or relaxing with your feet up, please enjoy the next hour, one minute at a time, with my special guest, Margie D. My name is Margie, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Margie. I'm so glad you're here today. So you're in London, and we're doing this with a six-hour time difference, and mm -hmm. you don't sound like you have a London accent by any means. No. <laughs> no, I do not. <laughs> do you ever fake it? <laughs> nope, never. Unlike, you know, I, I have done an acting part or two where I've had to kind of do but no. Um, a lot of people ask me that. It's like, you've been in London 20 years. And I'm like, why aren't you sounding like a Lunder? A, I'm not one. You know, uh -huh. I wasn't born here. Right. B, um, I'm really not that easily influenced. Yeah, that's good. That's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Plus, plus it, it, it makes for a more interesting conversation. So <laughs> can I guess uh, where you're from originally? In New York City, maybe? Mm, not New quite. Jersey? Uh, New Jersey? No, not quite. A little bit more east and north. Boston. Um, <clears throat> Close. Um, um, I'm from Rhode Island, which is uh, right on the Massachusetts border. Uh, so we get, you know, we're, we're kind of between um, Boston and New York. And the accent kind of comes up that thrown in with some French Canadian. So, I get that. There you go. Yeah. You uh, so are you from Newport or Providence? Or oh, no, no, no. I'm from the dodgy end. I'm from, oh. uh, you know, Newport. Newport's all the Vanderbilts and, and oh, Rockefellers. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I thought maybe you no, were. No, no, no. That's not me. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, other end, other oh. other end. Winsacket, Rhode Island, which is considered, you know, uh, not it's considered not Newport. Let's put it that not way. Newport. A lot of working class and and that kind of thing. Yeah, and which is which is fine. You know, it's a very little state. It's about the size of London, I think. So, did you actually grow up there? Yes, born, bred, grew up. Got all my foibles there. Got all my good parts. And then, you know, as I got older, I decided, you know, I didn't. I really didn't like New England. No winters didn't mm -hmm. you know as much as I well you grew up there you should be used to them. never yeah. I was never yeah. ever used to them and I always had yeah. in the back of my mind it wouldn't so my sister lived in Miami uh -huh. and um when I was in need of making a geographical transition mm -hmm. when I was hitting toward the end of my drinking days I went to Miami that, that's what I think al alcoholics do you know yeah. they never uh do a geographical to like Iowa <laughs> or North Dakota. It's like, I'm in Miami. I'm getting a Oh, you know, things are getting rough here. I'm going to North Dakota. You know, it's like... <laughs> only, it's if you, like only if you want to get lost or you're running from the law, well, maybe, right? <laughs> yeah, but everybody from New York, I mean, they considered Miami the, the sixth uh, uh, borough of, of New York. Um, yeah, yeah. A lot of New Yorkers. You either go to... You might go to New York. You might go to New York City. Right. Uh, but it's either Miami 
Los Angeles or someplace warm. You don't go. You Phoenix, don't go, Scottsdale, Arizona, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Las yeah, Vegas. You're not, yeah, you're not going to go to Fargo. You no, know, like, no, no. Who would, for who would geographical, do that? you know, it's like, no. So you mentioned your foibles. So, so, so are they are those starting with family foibles? What was life like when you were growing up? Uh, you know, I, I, you know, again, I came from yeah. uh, a working class, you know, my uh-huh. um, kind of thing. So, uh, if you look at my history, you're yeah. going to kind of got to look at the history of the place, which is the outside things that influence you, oh, but yeah. also um, your genetic uh, oh, yeah. makeup. And my genetic makeup was. Uh, Irish, Roman, Polish, Catholic. There's no way I could escape. <laughs> you know, so they get you in it. every direction, don't oh, they? Oh my God! You know, it's like oh. so. Uh, as far as as far as being a guilty alcoholic, there's mm-hmm. no there. You know, there there was that was just it. You know, I was brought up, um, you know, in the church, which I never really connected with, but you kind of mm-hmm. had to obey because you were a kid. And and you know, I just came from a family of uh, genetic. Uh, right. alcoholics, you know, mm-hmm. there was the Polish side, which they love to drink. And then there was mm-hmm. the Irish and English side and they love to drink, they love it. which I think, you know, it, it's like when people say, oh, if you were in my profession, everybody in my profession drinks. It's like, yeah. I have over the years, cause I've been sober a long time. Um, yeah. I have found every profession drinks. Yeah. Everyone is like, well, if you were a dentist, you would, if yeah. you were a doctor, you would, if you were a policeman, you would. And if you were a steel worker, you would. And if you were a mom alone in her house doing, you know, houseworthy mm-hmm. things, you would, you know, yeah. um, the ones that really scared me were less than the airline pilots. Cause I used to work in the industry and mm-hmm. we used to have a special program for, mm-hmm. um, the airline industry. The pilots didn't scam me as much cause there's always a co-pilot. Right. The mechanics union, Scared me. Hopefully, they're not doing maintenance uh, on yeah, a Monday after like a wild weekend. The next weekend. day, they find a handful of nuts and bolts in their pocket. You know, um, <laughs> so I yeah. haven't heard of any profession where I say nobody drinks here. Yeah, some professions are better at hiding it than others, though. Exactly. I mean, you know, yeah. the entertainment industry. The reason it's, it's so prominent is just because of all the publicity around the, the exactly. profession. I, but I've known plenty of doctors, and they, they yep. even go to their own separate meetings. Uh, because they can't have the public knowing that they're that they're alcoholics in their midst, which is how originally the program was was put together. Because oh, yeah. there was a lot of stigma to mm. any profession that you, if you said you were an alcoholic, now it's like it's it's rather chic if you've yeah. been in in recovery, and you know. But that's taken eighty years to get there. That's but right. in the beginning, um, your reputation and your business and you know everything else could be shot to hell in one uh, things, and that's why they kept it uh, anonymous you know, on yeah. a historical point of view. Well, we're fortunate. You, you and I are fortunate that we are able to, you've been you've been sober uh, a long time, as have I, yes. but we're able to go ahead and uh, let people know because we realize how important it is to be able to help people. But yes. I can imagine, and even the helping professions, when you have to protect your anonymity, how yeah. hard it must be. Now, you mentioned you've been sober a long time. What My sobriety date is November 6, 1979, so I've been sober 41 years so far. Oh, my so gosh. Far. Oh, I my know, gosh. right? I knew it was high, high forty, uh, high thirties. I didn't realize yeah. it's forty. I have an, I have an L on my chip. It's like an XL. <laughs> and it's like an L. You know. <laughs> yeah, I want to, I want to get it. I want to get up to the point where there's only an L. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, well, you don't want to get to the point where it's a, a C. Have you ever known anybody's got a C on there? <laughs> Not yet, but we're no, getting there. No, you know, we're no. getting there. Yeah. yeah. So you grew up in this, um, one of my friends used to call it a CIA family. Catholic, Irish, alcoholic. Yeah, yep. he was in a CIA family. So Plus the Polish. My town was loads of churches. Mm-hmm. And there was only 40,000 people. Loads of churches, loads of bars. And, um, you know, the, the joke around the, the Polish community, because we had lots of different kinds of people living in the, in, sure. in, in the town. It wasn't just things. It was all kinds of people. But, like, the, in the Polish thing, in our Polish family, it was mm-hmm. like the, the joke was, I went to a, a fight and a Polish picnic yeah. broke out. <laughs> You know, and it was, it was basically that. Everybody get drink, you know, do the pokas, dun, 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 yeah. and then start hitting each other. I just think there's a percentage of the population that is alcoholic. Yeah. And a percentage of the population permeates every ethnic group, every every business group, yeah. any kind of things. It's like 10 to 15%, I think, is the um, thing. I think it's higher. But that's how many per capita that you can expect within putting 100 people together or 200 people together. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And some, some ethnic groups are a little bit more 
uh, predisposed to being being open to it that other people know about it. So now, when when was your first? Uh, when did you first? take a drink. I was in high school. It was the late 60s, early 70s. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was kind of a rule. You had to, because of that was all Haight-Ashbury, uh, mm-hmm. you know, oh, yeah. Vietnam protest, uh, Hippies, yeah. love and peace, you know, that kind of thing. Hippies, flower children, that kind of thing. It was kind of mandatory for mandatory. kids in junior high school and high school to drink terrible wine, Boone's Farm, Thunderbird, uh-huh. Mad uh-huh. Dog, all that kind of you know, cost like 50 cents a bottle. And yeah, it was like, it. oh boy, was that it, stuff it, bad. Yeah, and smoke pot and listen yeah. to Jimi Hendrix and eat Cheetos by the bagfuls, you know. Um, yeah, when you say mandatory, it sounds like it's something <laughs> that you had to do that you might not have enjoyed. Oh, no, I enjoyed it. Heck okay. yeah. You know, but right. it was like, you know, it was all peace and love and, you know, have a little, you know, pot and all that stuff, which I didn't really like. That I didn't really like that much, but I sure did like the Boone's Farm and the Thunderbird. And after uh-huh. a while, I started to to like the things. It didn't really affect me that much in high school because I didn't do it. It was right after high school where it fell over. Now it's a requirement. It's not just something that we're doing because, you know, we're of all the, all the flowers going kind of uh, thing going on. It was, it changed. It, the, the, yeah. um, the nature of how I drank changed. During high school, it was like, you know, Fit, to fit in and 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 that sort of thing. Yeah, because, yeah. Be, because you and I both know people keep on drinking for different reasons, either to blot out feelings of loneliness yeah. or peer pressure, or simply just to change the way they feel. Which of which of those categories did you mostly fit into? I don't think I fit into any of them really. really? Um, I didn't. Okay. I I just drank because I felt the urge. Um, the urge. I remember as a kid, kid before the whole drinking things, it didn't really blot out my emotions. It kind of really? made them worse. <laughs> Did it really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like one of those maudlin ones. You know, it's uh-huh. like, oh, I'm having a terrible life, and now I'm drunk, and I'm going to tell you all about it forever <laughs> and repeatedly. Hi, <laughs> oh, it's three in the morning. Let me complain <laughs> about my current boyfriend. Blah, you know. That kind of a drunk. Yeah. Uh, so it, it didn't blot out anything. It brought him right up and said, let's talk about this in a really drunk and annoying manner. That was just before it really started to to get um, ugly. Yeah, you know? really. Uh-huh. That was kind of the part that started to show that there was something. Because you know, the thing is, I wasn't getting phone calls from people like that. I you was only giving phone giving. calls yeah. like that. Yeah. Then, of course, it gradually um, it escalates into, uh-huh. uh, especially during that whole free love thing. You know, you uh-huh. end up in somewhere where you don't know who you are or, or what the person's name is, or mm-hmm. you know that kind of thing. And it just it was a it was an insidious, gradual, almost imperceptible. Um, escalation of of things. It wasn't all of a sudden. It was gradually. I can track it like from 1971 up to about 76, 77. Now, now I'm, I'm just spending my life cleaning up the consequences of, of what happens when I drink. But it was gradual up until that point. First, it was, you know, just being a pain in the ass. And, and other times it, it, it turned into just bad behavior when I was drunk. And then it turned into driving drunk. A, you know, if you look at those bell charts of alcoholic behavior, yeah. you can see me in a little car going <laughs> going, <laughs> go, going through each phase of it. And then it sets in stone. And then uh-huh. you, that's when you lose the power of choice whatsoever. Yeah, it sounds like it sounds like that was a that was a difficult time. And yeah, often. I often notice how decisions I made within a relatively brief period of time under the influence, whether it was drugs or alcohol, were decisions that affected me for a much, much greater length Mm -hmm. of time than the time in which I was doing the things that created those decisions. Were you hanging with a particular group of people at this time or in high school? And did you go on to university or... Mm -hmm. no, I didn't go on to university. I went on to, I, I, I um, attended college after I got sober. I was from a, a family that they were not um, prone to go to college. It was like you, you leave your house at 18 and you get a job and that's it. And you, you take care of yourself and whatever you do with that, it's entirely up to you. 
Um, I, I, you know, when I got sober, I went, I went back to school for, you know, various different things. Um, Uh after high school, I didn't hang too much with my, my high school friends. I was in Uh like a larger city. I moved to a larger city, Providence. And, Uh and so I hung around with, with people who drank. Um, I was also a dancer. So I hung around with dancers. Mm -hmm. Um, I hung around things, but you know, oddly, I still have some of those, some of those friends now, you know, so I was out and about and then, you know, disco happened, man. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like everybody was, you know, doing the disco duck. Everybody was drinking and wearing shiny clothes and, you know, all of that. And so I hung around with that group. Did any of the the group that you hung around with that you still know to this day, are they still drinking or did they get sober or what, what's their story? A couple of them are, are, yeah, actually a couple of them are sober, two of the dancers that I used to hang around with uh, things. We, we all kind of quit drinking almost on the same day in different parts really? of the world. Yeah. I was in Miami. Wow. My uh, girlfriend, Holly, who I just talked to, um, things uh-huh. we, we shared a flat. An apartment in Woonsocket, mm-hmm. Rhode Island, where I'm from. Anyways, but um, she was in Los Angeles. I was, I was in still, I was in Miami, and the other one, my friend Charlie, was still in um, in New England. Uh-huh. We all just went. Well, that was completely crazy. I have to stop this crap. And, you know, they're all still sober now. Yeah. Now, was that because they were brought to a bottom? And, and speaking of bottoms, what was yours like when you started to approach your, your sobriety date? Sit down and get a cup of coffee, Howard. Well, I'm, that's why I'm here. That's why I'm here. That's my job. <laughs> it's the most ridiculous thing ever. I mean, it's like somebody, you know, made made it up, only it actually happened. I, I went down to Miami because the consequences were getting annoying. I was smashing up a lot of cars. My boyfriend at the time was a, a policeman in South Attleboro, Massachusetts, and I I T-boned the fire chief's uh, car with my with oh. his car. <laughs> oh no! Yeah, but it was all just stupid junk like that. You know, I I was a stupid junk, and I'm a, I'm a relatively intelligent person, and I could yeah. see how stupid my behavior was looking. So to someone else looking outside, go that woman's. That girl is crazy and she's stupid and stay away from her. Um, When crazy meant crazy instead of just fun-loving crazy. No, not fun-loving crazy. Crazy back up away from her crazy. You know, Um, stun gun would be good. So because, you know, the consequences like T-boning the fire chief's car, like, you know, do, you know, all that kind of nonsense that we do that. Were you hurt when that happened? Yeah, I was hurt. Um, uh, not in an ambulance sort of way, but smashed up the head. And um, uh, I uh, put my teeth, you can still see the scar that I have where I put my teeth through my lip, you know, that kind of stuff. What a reminder. They didn't arrest people so much then back in the 70s for drunk driving. So you had a boyfriend who was a cop. Did he get you out of scrapes? Yeah, for a while. For a while, okay. (laughs) But (laughs) then it got annoying, you know. And it was about that time that that I decided to, um, because the consequences were, were now chewing at the back of my my shoes um, to go to Miami. And anyways, I hated the winter. So uh, my sister said, come on down, because she was Uh going to Miami. And I went down to Miami in 1978, I guess, Uh beginning of 1978. Uh And down I went, and it was like, it was wonderful, you know. It was like, there was paradise, and there was things, and there was drinking. And my bottom was, so uh, Uh I I worked it up and got some new consequences there, you know, kind of things, driving around drunk, ending up in Parts of Miami you really should not go to uh-huh. ever. Yeah. It was the height of the drug dealers oh, yeah. and the drug wars there. It was that. And it was also uh, Castro had let out. Um, that was when Jimmy Carter was was president. Um, he opened up the the prison um, doors yeah. in some of the psychiatric hospitals. Uh-huh. And he loaded them all up on about 250,000, what they call the Mario, Mario Lito boat lift. Uh-huh. I remember that. And and so I was like in Coral Gables where they all arrived. So I was getting myself in all kinds of trouble with all of the Marielitos, and God bless them. Some of them went on to be wonderful citizens, sure. but a lot were still, you know, criminals and, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And they were, you know, looking for advantages in Miami. So I was hanging around with them. I was hanging around with drug dealers. I was hanging around, you know, I don't know how I don't know how I survived because I was stupid. I needed to get a drink. And if you were going to buy me one, I thought you were going to go somewhere where there was one. No matter where. Yeah, uh, in places in Miami that you do not go to. I don't know how I survived. I remember once stepping over a body that was covered with a yellow sheet to get into Sammy's on the east side. To go, you know, it's like it wasn't pretty. My goodness. 
And there was a lot of cocaine in those days down there, wasn't there? Man, cocaine cowboys. That's where the name came from. It was in during Miami during that time. So that was the time when I was uh, at my peak. So I was working in my, my brother-in-law had a restaurant bar and mm-hmm. I was working at, behind the bar then. Mm-hmm. And I met mm-hmm. um, this man who was the man of my dreams. So I thought, really, lots of money, mm-hmm. lots of things. He was a Learjet pilot. Wow. He was um, drove a white Corvette, which should have been <laughs> right there. For should a have signal. been <laughs> warning, warning, warning. <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> right there. Yeah. But I didn't know. I was like, oh, I was half in a bag yeah. most of the time. Sure. And so um, he he was. We went flying all over the place. Mm-hmm. Little things. He gave me lots of money. I was in love. It was big, giant, tremendous love. Mm-hmm. I love this guy. And so, and I was drinking and he bought me as much drink as I, I could handle. He furnished my apartment. Was he a drinker too? Yes. But he wasn't not, he didn't seem to, when I drank, I kind of lost uh, bone structure, uh-huh, you know? Yeah. It's like I just became kind of, you know, melted down into yeah. a, gelatinous, a pile. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> gelatinous, yeah. <laughs> I was gelatinous and stupid, you know, yeah. and whiny. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't evil. I wasn't doing evil stuff. So he was, he was buying you, uh, he was. Oh, everything. And he also had a best friend named Bruce who used to come with us quite a lot. So. So toward the end, um, it was big love. And I think on his part, too. Mm-hmm. Um, one day he he went away on a business trip. Mm-hmm. See, business trip. I'm thinking, you know, Learjet pilot. And he is, he is flying Japanese businessmen from here to there all over South Florida. Uh-huh. There's a lot of money down there. Yeah. And that was his job. So, okay. So he goes off for a couple of days. He comes back, la, la, la. And, uh, you know, I'd hang out with Bruce and that kind of thing. And so one day he just didn't come back. You know, he's huh. gone for a week. He's gone for two weeks. And he's like, okay, what the hell's going on here? And um, so I called a few of his friends. You know, he used to have friends like Norm Crosby, the comedian and, you know, businessman in Hollywood, Florida. And he was like, he was quite a deal in my eyes. So he didn't come back. And I called his friend Dick up in Hollywood. And I said, what's the deal here? And he said, well, we're just going to his funeral. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh. So I'm like, whoa, I'll flip out, you know, blah, 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 oh, blah. I had my brother-in-law and my sister take me up to Hollywood to, to this thing. Well, so there I am, and I'm at this. Yeah. <laughs> I'm at the funeral par outside, flipping out. Big love of my life, supposedly dead. Mm-hmm. Blah blah blah. And um, Dick comes out and he goes, "What the hell are you doing here?" I'm like, "Boyfriend dead, girlfriend <laughs> here." You know, um, yeah. this is what I'm doing. He said, "So this is something that this gentleman neglected to tell me was that a." He was not flying Japanese businessmen. He was actually, what had happened was, uh, supposedly his his Learjet went down in the Everglades um, Mm. and crashed. And actually, there was um, a jet that went down in the Everglades on that that day. And Mm -hmm. he had... um, he had died in the crash, supposedly. It was not Japanese businessmen that went down with him. It was a whole load of drugs from um, Escobar that he oh, was okay. flying. His business trips were to Bogota, Colombia mm-hmm. and back. Oh. So he was a courier for the cart. <laughs> Boy, that is that is big business, isn't oh, it? Oh, yeah, yeah. And so uh, that I found out. And then I found out, you forgot to tell me. That he was married with three children. Oh no! And the the wife and the three children were inside the um, the funeral home, all lined up and greeting guests. And I was just about to walk in. I'm like, what? not only dead, not yeah. only Bogota, you know, yeah. um, not only wife and three children, um, this kind of thing. And then I mm-hmm. called Bruce, and I'm like, why the Break didn't you tell you know on and on? Uh-huh. So about six months later, it was right after that I really went into some drinking and and uh, you know I, cocaine. Cocaine speeded up my bottom a little bit, uh-huh. only because it made me so miserable and yeah. so it just it speeds you know puts a time constraint on that. Did you split when you when you saw that the wife and kids were there, or did you actually? Oh uh, no, I didn't go in. No, no, okay, no. good. No, good, no, no, good. no. I'm All not right. that that yeah, evil you know yeah, yeah. they took me they took me away but oh, i did do a lot of grieving for about six to eight months and then i came into the program through another uh, set of circumstances mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. i was on a um not a yacht but a big boat in right. uh, biscayne bay with some some sober friends and something and i heard somebody talking at the at the um bow of the boat 
And um, they mentioned this guy's name. I was like, oh, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, uh, what's uh-huh. his name? John, which I won't mention his last name. Um, yeah. He says, oh, yeah. He, didn't he go down in a jet? And everybody goes, nah. He's, he's like, he's living. He's living. He faked his own death and he's living in Bimini. Oh, no. Oh, that was my bottom, Howard. That was your bottom. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Nowhere else to go but AA after that. Huh? I do. <laughs> you know, and plus I was crashing cars and I was depressed and I was taking antidepressants and drinking oh, and smashing yeah. into things. And I got yeah. in a really bad accident um, mm-hmm. after that. I nearly died in that. And my then after goodness. that, it was like they basically threw me through the doors after that. That's it. We're done. We're done with you. Get. You're going. Wow. I wasn't picking up on the clues, obviously, and I didn't uh-huh. have a lot of discretionary kind of um, judgment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> Which but- I think that, that happens. Everybody has that. It's like they have the story is going, how can I be so stupid? Yeah, that's that moment of clarity everybody's looking for. <laughs> yes, that was mine. But it was somewhat muddled with everything that was going on, I guess. Huh? Yeah, yep. So you, you, you get into AA in 79. What was your first uh, months and, and year like coming in? Were you, were you embracing of it? Were you resistant to it? I don't know about you, but I don't recognize what my thinking patterns were then. Yeah. You know, what kind of sentences were going on in my head? Yeah. What was I saying to myself? I got thrown in by my friend Joanne, who was... Uh-huh. Um, working at the bar and she basically took me in her red drop top Cadillac and drove by there because she had some experience with AA and she opened the door. I don't remember her stopping. Open the door <laughs> and in you go, out. you know, because I was, she goes, you're killing yourself. That's it. You're gone. Yeah. And so I walked in the doors and it was a women's meeting mm-hmm. and Harriet R who was, she was actually uh, friendly with Bill W um, yeah. uh, from here and Clarence and them guys mm-hmm. used to hang around with them. And it was like, yeah. I mean, she was like yeah. a zillion years sober then. Uh-huh. So yeah, so she was about 40 years sober then because it was wow. like 80 years since they were quit. Yeah. So, uh-huh. and, and she was just this, this older lady and she was, and I don't, I don't remember what she said, but I remember her smiling and being the things. And there was a whole bunch of women in there. And, and I remember thinking that, but the next day I came back because it was at the call room, which is open from seven in the morning till uh, 12 at night. Yeah, um, yeah, and yeah, I 12. could just go, I just, that was my treatment. I never went to treatment. And I just mm. sat in there with the old freaking dudes. Um, which they were old. They were my age now, but yeah. they would, ju- you know, you could smoke in there and they would just smoke. And I'd be going, well, what, 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 st- well, I, I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what I had to do. I didn't know what it would lead to. I didn't mm. like the whole God thing, but it was sort of like, yeah. I've got, no, I've got nothing else to do. So sit there, you know, and do that. And I didn't embrace it. No, I oh. didn't. You know, it wasn't like, yes, I'm saved. You know, it was nothing like that. It was like, oh, my freaking word. I got to sit around with these old freaking dudes for the rest of my, you know, I was that kind of thing. And it was like, you know, I was looking at the steps and going, I'm not doing that, you know. But yeah, what they did was, you know, I'd be like, well, what's this traditions? What's this? You know, and I had disco hair on and sparkly <laughs> clothes at nine uh-huh. o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And oh, yeah. I was still working in the bar. And so. <laughs> <laughs> so they would just, they would just, there was one guy in there, orange boat shoes, saved my life. Really? Um, I don't remember his name exactly, but he used to bring me mangoes and he used to huh. kind of walk along in orange boat shoes and they didn't actually come off the floor. They just kind of scrape along the floor. And uh, he'd go, he called me Genevieve for some reason. I kept saying, my name is Margie. He goes, yeah, thanks, Genevieve. Um, so I was Genevieve and that yeah. was that. That may be a story you don't want to know. Right? I don't know. You know, there was time I was like, and I told him like three times, it's like, never mind. I'm Gen- Genevieve. And I'd be going, blah, blah, blah. He goes, well, just don't drink and go to me. And then the other old dudes that be sitting there all day smoking cigarettes down to the right. brown burn mark in the yeah. middle of their hand. Mm-hmm. Right. They'd be like, what, what about this? Ooh, I just stay there all day. So you just hung in the club during the day while you were waiting for meetings to go? That's it. You know, go to meetings because it was yeah. like eight meetings a day and I just wait for a meeting. And they would mm. just blow smoke in my face and go, well, just don't drink, go to meeting. That's all you got to do. You know, and so that's about all I could really absorb. And all the rest of it just was like total confusion. I don't know. Did that provide any clarity to you, though? The mechanics of it did. They, they, they did. Uh huh. Yeah. It was sort of like, you know what? If I don't drink and go to a meeting, I don't drink. What a revelation. I know, right? Yeah. And they were just saying it to get me away from them. (laughs) You know, they weren't trying to be profound. They weren't very warm and fuzzy back then, were they? (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> oh, no. oh, she comes. Oh, my God. <laughs> Don't drink go to meat. That's all you need to know. Okay, bye. You know. <laughs> Fine. But there's a profundity to that. Because yeah. if you don't drink, you know, right. I do the exact same thing now. The same set of rules applies to 41 years later that this is what you do. 41 years later, I don't drink. Okay, so I don't get drunk and that's the thing. Some people have been known to go out with sure. huge amounts of sobriety. Uh-huh. And um, if you go to a meeting, which I did, you yeah. gradually, incrementally, inescapably right. start to understand what you need to do to stay sober what it means to be in a fellowship, what mm-hmm. are things. And you cannot do that unless you go to a meeting because it's, you know sobriety is just not, you read the book and you go, the step and you do this and the step four and the nine and the 10 and the, and there you are, boom, all cooked, you're done. I'm, fo- I'm fond of saying to people, if you only do two things, if you only do two things, the first is don't drink. Yep. The second thing is go to meetings because at those meetings you'll learn about the other things you need to do. Yes, exactly. Because right. I think of, you know when you're saying to someone, okay, these are the things you got to do: not drink, go to meetings, get a sponsor, read the big book, pray, and then work with others. That list is too long. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Don't drink, go to meeting. See what happens at the meeting. That's basically it. That's the program because wow. that's when you know. And then somebody five days later says, "No, you need to get a commitment. You need to." We used to empty ashtrays. That, that's everybody's first commitment because we're too stupid ashtrays. to refuse. You know, it's like, and they were, <laughs> they're like, "Oh, newbies, they can clean up." Yeah. Did you have a sponsor at this time? Not immediately, but a little bit later, I did. Yeah, I did get a sponsor. Yeah. And, what was that experience like? Um, the first one, she she was quite simple, and um, she she did die, and then I got my American sponsor that I, I'm still in touch with dale dale the hippie the knower of all things she knew everything she and she would give it to you in four word sentences go look at the book go to step four don't drink go to meeting help another alcoholic and then she hang up on you she did not listen to whiny was she the was she the kind of sponsor you needed at that time or oh absolutely yeah you know because i can get quite you know i'm a writer yeah. now and um and I can get quite elaborate and go off onto tangents with my thinking. And she just needed to go, you know, the way out of the desert is that way. That's it. Don't do anything else. Just go that way. Just the facts. Just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. Just the facts, ma'am. Exactly. Just go that way. And I'd be like, but, and I don't really believe in that kind of, just keep walking, you know, um, and exactly what is exactly what I need yeah. now, because I can get, I can go off on tangents and, talk to myself in ways that that would get me in all kinds of trouble. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying this show, I invite you to check out the Big Book Podcast, the free audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging and inspiring word-for-word reading of all 11 chapters and personal stories, including more than 50 original stories that were left out of the third and fourth editions. If you've never read the first or second editions, these amazing stories will be brand new to you. The Big Book Podcast is read by Howard L., who receives no compensation for this vital service work. Subscribe to the Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and search for Big Book Podcast. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition Big Book wearing headphones. Or you can visit BigBookPodcast.com and listen there and share it with your friends, sponsees, and anyone you know who has a desire to stop drinking. It may be the only version of the big book they ever hear. And we're back. Isn't it interesting that the same things that were some of our, you know, some of the greatest uh, obstacles still pop up from time to time, some of those greatest obstacles in the beginning. I always, my sponsor always used to say, you know, you think too much. You just think, you're overthinking this thing. You're making, (laughs) you know, you ask an alcoholic what time it is and he tells you how to build a clock. Well, you want to know what city you're talking about too. Berlin. Yeah, yeah, Berlin. (laughs) New York. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Now you you'd mentioned that you had a had some um, difficulty, as did I, when I first came in with the God part of mm. what you saw. In in how long did it take you within the program and within the work that you were doing to feel differently about that? I had to do a lot of study. I, what I did was, um, I mean, I grew up in a a a Catholic um, sword swinging. You're going to hell for anything that you think do deed yeah. anything you do at the age of seven you know i was doomed mm-hmm, then you sure. know um i ate bologna on a friday uh-huh, and that's uh-huh. it you know you're yeah. done cooked. yeah 
cook, cook. So, you know, um, I never, I never connected with that because I didn't, it wasn't making sense to me. And what was weird, it was like, it looked like it was making sense to everybody else. And they're like, yeah, that's mm-hmm. cool. You know, I'm like, that can't be right. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't put a little kid in fire forever because they accidentally ate a hot mm-hmm. dog. It was like, mm-hmm. really? You know, and I didn't think, I, I thought it was um, a sham. Really? I thought that, that, yeah, I never connected with it. Never, ever as a uh-huh. kid. Um, I thought that God was mm-hmm. mean and not very, uh, didn't have justice mm-hmm. and didn't have this from what I was taught, the way I was taught about it. And um, I thought that can't be right. That's not all of it. It's like, I always wondered about God fearing. Why should you fear God? Right, right. How do you love somebody that you're afraid of? Well, it's like when they say God is all forgiving. Well, if God is all forgiving, then how could he possibly not be forgiving? Well, that's what I was thinking when I was eight years old. It's like, that. this is this is not connecting up and it's not making sense. Yeah. And um, everybody else seems to get it. And somehow I'm not. So... Uh, and I didn't think so much as like God hates me or anything like that. I just thought I don't think this is I don't think this is right. I just don't. And um, yeah, but they'll teach that right. They'll teach that right out. Right. Of then you're left with an ambivalent, uh, confused idea of what your higher power really is. I didn't connect to one. I had a suspicion that there was yeah. something else, uh-huh. and it wasn't speaking uh-huh. to me in uh-huh. the way it was speaking to everybody else. So when I get sober, um, I used to kind of be afraid of that because I was like I had a sneaking suspicion that there was something and it wasn't monolithic mm. or anything like that it wasn't if you wanted to have a god you could have odin sure. if you wanted uh-huh. to or zeus yeah. Yeah. you know or something like uh-huh. that but uh, i didn't think it was in that form and i couldn't but i didn't have a form or a, a, a thing to connect to so i felt very much in um limbo right. huh? um, yeah. <laughs> which is a guy you know something i was taught but in this place where it's like um, I have a feeling mm-hmm. that it's sort of like, I think there's some some treasure someplace, but it's not where everybody's looking, at least not for me. Um, right, right. And so I, uh, over the years, I studied, I went into comparative religion. Um, I Yeah, I, I looked at all kinds of stuff. I started practicing yoga, which didn't really lead me to that, but opened me up to like, you know, there's another side of thinking, yeah. you know, and I went more into Eastern thought, like Buddhism doesn't actually, I find... Um, AA is very Buddhist in its core principles. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, yes. It's like you don't revere Buddha. Yeah. You know, you don't sit and, you know, what you do is you practice the principles. Yeah. It's just basically what we do. We have founders who start of it and we're really right. grateful to them, but we don't um, idealize them and we don't idolize yeah. them, you know, and it's that kind of thing. So over the years, and, and I'm still yeah. at it, I'm uh-huh. still at it, a way I had to extract the idea of a monolithic yeah. you know like this is what god uh-huh. looks like kind of a thing and which i kept referring back to and it was like you you can't think in that way so it's a different thing and I eventually came up with the phrase that i connect to um i try to connect to every day is that which animates us that which animates us. i don't know what that is but somehow we're animated. Somehow there's order in the universe. Somehow that is. And I, um, I remember being like nine years old and thinking, why am I in this body? How come I can't go outside the edges of it? You know, why am I confined here? I remember one time it's like, I can't get out yeah. of here, you know? Um, and I had, so I had this idea that there was a, um, a, a difference between your physical body and your, your essence, the thing that, that which animates you, which some people call a soul. That's, that's very Zen yeah. to, to, to have that, to have that as a kid and then to pursue knowledge of yeah. that. So it sounds like your spiritual awakening was more of the educational kind along the way. Yes, very much so. But I found things that was like, see, see, this is what I've been talking about. So in between the, all of that time, I'm trying to, I'm feeling this way. It's like, I just landed in this, this thing. It's like, yeah. how come the molecules <laughs> stick together and hold you in the shape, you know, and then how come they're not like floating yeah. around and being, you know, different. It's like, you know, and that's with, whether you're talking about plants or ground or anything else, yeah. they, they, they hold a pattern while that's going on in my little nine-year-old, 10-year-old right. head. It's like, why am I stuck in here? It's like, I mean, I guess all right. And it seemed like, Am I the only one thinking this? And it was apparently, yes, you are the only one thing. And do you know what, though? I found out later as I read more on Eastern religions and things like that. I, um, I very much like um, the ideas that are set in Aldous Huxley's uh, The Perennial Principle. Yes, uh-huh. He comes back to the same thing. They call it, and that they call it the ground. Um, I call it that which animates me. I don't know what that is, 
but I can feel it, how people did that. So for you, you kind of had a double gift when you came into AA, didn't you? You got sober and you got a spiritual connection or a spiritual path. Path, yeah, very much so. So how did this spiritual understanding or realization inform your overall AA program? One of the things that that, um, I've discovered in most of my sobriety, Uh um, the things I learned have been in retrospect. I've been encouraged to do something that I, at the point of where I was at that Uh place, I thought that's never going to work. I don't see the point of that. That's just stupid. They're just telling me that. I don't know what they're talking about. Uh It didn't make sense to me at the starting line of whatever Uh it might be, whether it be a step, whether it be uh, working with other people, whether it be um, opening up to other possibilities, uh, whether it be getting through a program and just do this and that and the other thing. What I did, I was willing. Sure. Uh Because what I saw as an evidence Mm -hmm. that when people got sober, things did change. Uh Um, I lived in, in... in hope that yeah. that I went ahead, kicking and screaming, stamp on my feet, and I went ahead and did it. And as a result of that, it's like when they stay in t- step 12, as a result of doing those steps, so as a result of doing these steps, we have a change. It's as a result of doing a specific action, that action actually starts to change mm-hmm. your perspective and your understanding. And you don't have that until you actually go through the action. So um, I put my trust in people who had done it before, or if I watched them, I watched them uh, do this, and there was a change, and it was helpful. Life is challenging. And so doing having a guide and having a set of of steps, and I'm not talking about the 12 steps, a set of rules that's like, refer back to this, and yeah. you know you you can get through it. You're not always gonna. It's not always gonna be um, comfortable. It's not always gonna be fun. Uh-huh. It's not always gonna be uh, what you think it is. But you will get from point A to point B, and that's your only thing. And doing that without a drink, that's all you need to do. It doesn't have to be pretty. Doesn't have to be. But sometimes yeah. it is pretty. Sometimes it's real pretty. You know. Sometimes it is things you don't believe, and you go, "Oh my God, that's amazing." Um, yeah. And other times it's like. I am, you know, my my eyelashes are falling out. My hair is all ready. You know, my foot is broken, but I'm here. And um, that's all we need. We, you know, for me is 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 Uh that that step step that go go and getting through and having an experience in life that is that I have lived sober. Uh That's all we do. That's what we do. Um, And the other thing that that I found is. People have done it for me, sure. and I need to do it for other people, is that you have to reach back and help pull somebody else up with you. Sure. And that's part of what um, holds us and keeps us sober. It's like we learn what we need to do, and then we we uh-huh. let somebody else, once we've done that and once we've had experience with that, is to, to help other people do that too. Yeah. And that's what perpetuates us as we go on. Here's the thing. Um, yeah. I have... What I've developed for for AA yeah. and its process over time is hope, right. um, faith, and trust. I was when I first came in, I was hoping that things would change. I was hoping that I could somehow reach uh, a reasonable level of human uh-huh. uh, potential, and I was hoping just not to kill myself accidentally, you know, by my own hand, um, and it, you know, it, unintentionally. Um, I was hoping that, and I hoping that somebody could help me, and I was hoping that maybe this kind of things. Um, yeah. And then gradually, after after I was told various different things and what to do, and I started to get a little bit of time under the bed. Then yeah. I then I um then I then I had a little faith in it because I saw other people changing, and I saw you know I was like actually I did not drink all this time, so I do have faith in yeah. what they're they're saying to me. Um, and I, so I developed a little place, and I think that that's that's true. I can't have faith in something that has nothing, you know, no uh-huh. tangible bulk to it. But there was evidence. Of that there was evidence i was listening to people's sure. stories i was experiencing my own so i had a faith that if i did something that something actually would start to sure. develop for me and now i trust it 
So I trust that this goes on through my own experience, through the experience of other people and, you know, reinforcing that the ideas of that this actually does work by Uh people compare to you and you go, yep, I did that and it did work. And so it kind of reinforces the ideas of what you did while you were living sober. Uh, At what point did that start making the program fit? more into your life or or doing the steps i know because i had a i had a hard time with the spiritual part of the program and mine was truly an awakening because i didn't get any real spiritual connectedness until after i had Mm. worked all 12 steps at which point i had to look back and i had to say geez i thought i'd never say anything to anybody about that i thought i would never do this and that i somehow i did it ergo a power greater than myself. Finally, mm-hmm. I could pin what I had done onto something greater than myself. That took a couple yeah. years. But so what would you say to somebody who says, well, uh, Margie, I'd, I'd yeah. love that, that yeah. depth of uh, yeah. understanding, but is it going to take me all that time? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So how do you get, well, that'd be nice, but I like 41 years of sobriety. It's going to take me 41 years. Yes. It is, you know, um, some people come in with faith and that's, that's great, man. Hang your hat on that. Um, but if you don't know that you're going to learn so much, you're going to learn so much in that, in that things you will, as a result of studying things and and learning things and trying things, you become a more developed human being. Just like as the result of, right. of living sober, you become a different yeah. person. Your life changes. Your insights become more influenced. It may be yeah. a gradual thing. And it's just like I said in the book, one day it might hit you like a ton of bricks. Uh-huh. And, you know, but you, the journey is really what we're after, not the results. So there you are. And so you, you were fairly newly sober. And like I call newly sober in the first five years or so. And all of a sudden yeah. you got, I have spiritual awakening. And then what? And what, what is so like yeah. you're done now or like what's the thing it should be a, like life is what you think now yeah. about stuff you know um when you're older is very yeah. different than when you did when you were 20 and that came about as uh-huh. a result of just like it says in step 12 as a result of doing these steps as a result of living your life as a result of trying with the things you become a different person uh-huh. so your look back what you're saying now is like i want all this spiritual spirituality i want it now your your take on that in 10 years sure. is going to be very different than it is now so you have to give yourself that opportunity to go sure. and that's where the uh hope um, the faith and the trust comes in. You can see it in other people. You can hear it in other people. You can start to experience little little lights of it yourself. And that's where you come price. So you don't know what's what you're going to be like in 15 years. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know how you're going to develop. You don't know that. And you have to give yourself the opportunity to be able to experience that. It doesn't happen. You know, some people do get hit by lightning and then they're perfectly wonderful the rest of their lives. I don't have, that's not been my mm-hmm. experience. Was there ever a point where you thought, well, maybe I could stay sober with just that and not have to be as involved in an actual program itself? After all, I've been sober. I'm I'm crediting that to a power greater than myself. Is that not enough to stay sober such that I don't have to go to as many meetings or engage with people as much? No. Never. (laughs) I know myself. I have lived with myself all this time. It's yeah. sort of like I know. I still feel it now that if I started drinking, mm-hmm. I'd be over, over, you know, gone. I would be gone. You'd be gone. You know, it's You'd sort of gone. like, um, listen, I'm going to give you six cupcakes. Only eat one of them. Yeah. <laughs> Not happening. <laughs> I know myself, yeah. you know, yeah, I know what my body that. does, does with it. I know what it feels like to drink too much and then to drink anyway, even though I'm saying to myself, I don't want to be doing this. And I do, I know that still lives in me. I also know I have seen people, yeah. especially in that not between five and 10 years, think that, you know, uh-huh. everything's good. I don't have to go get I'm going to go be a normal person now. And that right. thing still lives there. I know that my, um, alcoholism delivers there in, in cognitive behavioral therapy and various other different kinds of therapies. They refer to it as the an integrated sub-personality. Wow. And I can feel it. It sits there knitting or doing whatever it does, and then it'll come up with a bespoke uh-huh. to my level of, of yeah. sobriety or emotional emotional sobriety that day, come up with an idea and float it. 
and see if I'll go for it. Wow. You know, it's sort of like um, I do little little homages when I go into the grocery store or something like that. And I find myself going back like a wine display or something like that. I do not read the labels. I yeah, put my eyes yeah. down. It's sort of like, because that's just a very thin way. We read the label. It's all right. You can read the label. Why would I want to read the wine label? That's it's like, wonderful. there's no reason for that. But that part of me goes, no, you can do that. You're okay. You've got lots of sobriety. Yeah. It's all like, ooh, like the sirens, you know, uh, pulling the ships to the rocks. It, yeah, yeah. It's okay. It's okay if I go to the edge of the cliff. I'm just going to take a look ah, over the look, edge. <laughs> you know, I know it's raining and snow and it's icy, but that's all right. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. And it's like, so no, I, I do know that yeah. it, it is available to me at all times. I have never felt that. And also, I think what makes AA work, we could, if, if it just was like just about us alone, we could just yeah. get the book on Amazon, read it, and boom, yeah. Bob's your uncle, and away you go, and you'd be sober forever. That's not what makes this whole thing work. It is that yeah. um, that you take it, you take the principles, you incorporate it, and then you yeah. have to move it outward. That's what keeps the circle, the water yeah. wheel, moving. It's like it goes down, and it comes back up. What The water going down pushes the thing, and that's what brings us back up so that we can push down the water again. And I've said this many times before, but it's the, the strange of AA, why it works. People trying to yeah. get us sober or see it, see us as it's like they've been friends, uh, lovers, sure. husbands, wives, kids, um, mothers, fathers, doctors, policemen, psychiatric hospitals, nurses, doctors, you name it. You know, if an alcoholic wants to drink, they're going to drink. So somehow I do think, and this is where I do think there was some kind of divine, if yeah. you want to talk of the thing that animators said, that's yeah. enough with this junk. We have lost billions Millions of these people and they're useless and they're just making right. a blot on the landscape and really they are good working parts and they could be more useful to the to the universe and to earth so i'm going to stick you all in a room together unsupervised nope not them just nope no supervisors no directors we're going to put see what happens and that's how they form the program that's how they form the the steps that's how it's like yeah. left to our yeah. own devices with another alcoholic we do pretty yeah. goddamn good, you know, we really do, but the professionals can't help us. Yeah. And there's something magical in that, yeah. that another alcoholic is there. This is what I'm going through. Let me help you yeah. reach down, pay it forward. Um, that's, that's what is the yeah. secret to AA. They can be the little push that gets you through the door. Yeah. And from then on, it's, it's up to you and yeah. the group. So sounds to me like with 41 years with that kind of approach and that sort of frame of mind about the program, have there been times at which that was strained or tested things, events, occurrences in your life <laughs> where you were hanging on by your fingernails oh, or where, you, yeah. where yeah. you were kind of dancing along the edge of the cliff? And how did you get pulled back in? What, what happened? I think my attention has been drawn away. I've never stopped going to meetings. That is something that has been a consistent through my yes. in, mm -hmm. entire spot. I think the longest I've gone is 10 days. And that's when I had, when I was in the hospital having children. Yeah. Um, uh, and then they started coming to meetings with me in the bucket. Uh, <laughs> uh, I took a baby or two myself. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, I, I've never done that. So I've never, you know, distanced myself uh, enough for that. But yeah, uh, there's been, some, I've gone through some horrible times, really, mm. really bad times in, in, um, my sobriety. You know, I got the event, I got the, the, um, you know, careful what you wish. Well, you get to live. Uh, yeah. It's like, oh yeah, I'm like, we're out of the woods. I'm, I'm like, oh, we're going to go to the land of Oz and it's all going to be wonderful. You know, and it's like, mm, yeah. Oh, did I tell you about that forest thing and the horrible yeah. witch and all of the other stuff? Did, oh, did I forget to mention that? You <laughs> know, <it>. you know, <laughs> um, I've been through some horrible times where I've gotten very oh, yeah. mentally distracted. And, you know, this is my alcoholism talking to me. You've been sober all this time. And now look at you. You got three kids. You got no money. Your husband's off in Greece, you know, screwing some lady over there and blah, blah, blah. You know, you know, and you got no money, and you know, and how could, you did all this, you know, all this, and it was sort of like, yeah, I did, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and somehow I stayed so. But people came came with me and said, "You're gonna get through. You may end up being, you know, a bit frayed around the edges and have yeah. scars and all that stuff, but you got to live." grateful for that i'm not particularly pleased with a lot of the things i had to go through because you know 
I, the one thing I don't yeah. like, um, and I think this is where mm-hmm. we have to have compassion who, for people who are have gone through some terrible times, and mm-hmm. um, I think people kind of fluff sure. off uh, other people's pain sometimes. It's like whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. You know what? Mm-hmm. You know, once you've been assaulted, um, you know, in by life, by a person, by anything, it's like it may not kill you, but it can maim you and, and really hurt you and make it difficult to continue living over here. And this is where we come to each yeah. other's rescue, you know. Yeah. And one, one of the things I have noticed over the years is that when people like you or I who've got long term sobriety who do stay yeah. in the middle of the program, yeah. who do yeah. go to meetings all the time. And then we face these challenges. And of course, we, because of the way we've set up our fellowship yeah. and our spiritual life, we get through these things. It is incumbent upon us, I think, to mm-hmm. share that in a way that encourages people who are looking forward to possibly yeah. going through tough times. Somebody with two, yeah. maybe f- up to five years thinking, well, will I be able to make it? When they yep. hear that message, it, I think it instills hope. Yes, it does. So I have an obligation as a sober alcoholic to share that, which is why if I'm not in meetings, I'm not sharing. Yes, it, right? exactly right. And and so this whole podcast is just another right. way that I that I want to be of service to people mm-hmm. to be able to listen to people like you say, yeah. "Man, I've been through some terrible, terrible things, but I stayed in the yeah. middle. I kept my yeah. my fellowship strong. I kept my yeah. spiritual life strong, and I made it through it. Was it fun? No. No. No, it was, it sucked. It sucked. Which is Big why, time. which is why Mar- Margie, have you ever noticed where when people, when people are struggling or really, you know, having a tough time, people say, well, just do this, just do this, just do this, just pray more, pray more. Pray. And I'm a firm believer that you can feel yeah. two things at the same time. I can, I can be fearful about something, but still yes. knowledgeable that it will pass. Of course. Or I may feel sad about something, but grateful that I can experience that sadness. Does that make sense? Yes, exactly right. Exactly right. Two diametrically opposed ideas. And um, the word just, the, the word just is, um, yeah. it diminishes a lot of things. It's like, just do this. In other words, with, in, in that word just, it's like a, a kind of a throw out things, but it's like, that's all you need to do. And then everything will be fixed. And you should know that. And it's sort of, it, it's, it's, yeah. it's kind of insulting, you know, really. It really diminishes yeah. somebody's pain. Just do that. Even though I, do, I say, j- j- don't drink and go to meetings. You know, I think under, people understand that that is a big, there's a lot more um, uh, yeah. meaning to yeah. that. But the word just, you know, when somebody says just pray or just do this or just, it, yeah. it really diminishes what right. what they're going through uh, from here because yeah. it's dismissive. Yeah. And just as importantly, and I, I love that, I love that idea that just diminishes just as much. Well, ja, there I went and used the word. Okay. <laughs> okay. Different but context. The idea that, okay, if, if I'm sober X number of years, I will, I will have arrived. <laughs> Uh, my my sobriety no my sobriety will be set and carved in granite never to be shaken for the rest of eternity and it's always so I'm always so grateful when I have we had a guy in one of the men's meetings I went to who lost a son to suicide oh lost another one to Ugh. cancer he but he would come in and he would yeah. share what was going on he's been sober like 45 50 years and he was still sharing this stuff and he was still shedding a tear and it was so beautiful to see that we still have to live life no matter how long we stay sober of course we do that's the whole point of being sober so when people can get to that i really i really appreciate it so if this was a regular interview i would have done all kinds of research i would have Mm. Looked into, you know, maybe tried to find out more about you, talk to other people about you, that kind of stuff. But <laughs> the only thing I need to know about you is that you're a sober alcoholic mm-hmm. who, in her shares, projects gratitude. And I sense the gratitude while you're talking, that you're enjoying this thing. And I, I love AA. I, I can't say enough good things about it. It's not what people think. And I am eternally, and you know, you hear it so much yeah. that it becomes almost like a throw-off kind of thing. Sure. Eternally grateful. I, the longer I'm sober, the more I understand what this is. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and it is. It's like the shades of it are, you know, you can't always get that in your first meeting. You, you know, you can get gratitude in the first meeting. It's like, 
I think I might be able to do this. I think I may be not doing And that's a different kind of, of gratitude um, to, oh my God, this this has, has enhanced my being. Yeah. My being. Again, going back to that, that which animates that, it has uh, developed that enough. And that's, I mean, with all, what all major religions want to do anyways, is, yeah. um, I mean, some of them anyway, is to develop you as a spiritual being being yeah um not necessarily a minion of of thor odin or (laughs) you know yeah i mean if you want to be you can be sure i i I always like to talk about being the spiritual being having the human experience and part of having that human experience is going through everything that humans can go through with the innate knowledge and wisdom and feeling that you are a spiritual being and that god has you covered no matter what or a higher power has you covered no matter what one of the things you mentioned earlier when you were talking about we could, if it wasn't like this, we could just get a book, you know, send out a book and yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah. My yeah. concern now with a lot of people who are on Zoom who've never gone to a live meeting is that Zoom to me feels very much like trying to read a book. And so, Mike, Mike have you thought about how it's going to be when people come back? Do you think they can get what they need from Zoom sufficient to bring them back into AA when we're really back together? As from an experience and kind of view, I get a lot from Zoom, but I, I have too. the backup of, you know, years and years of, of physical meetings. Um, I think yeah. <laughs> I think they're going to be overwhelmed and shocked because everybody's going to be, I'm going to be hugging you until your eyes pop out, you know, kind of a thing. Right, you know? right, so, right. Uh-huh. So I get yeah. overload, yeah. overload. Um, I think. Yeah. <laughs> but, and one of the things that I do work about that the physicalness of having a commitment making tea putting out chairs you know that kind of thing is is missing mm-hmm. um from a lot of and that that to me is, is a lot of what built my uh, experience as a sober alcoholic sitting in those clubs all all day long yeah and what are you doing now it's like i once went and cleaned the men's room in the club which the, the, the you know three people come up to you and says you are now exonerated from doing any <laughs> any commitment work at all for the next three years you know <laughs> You know, it was that bad. Oh, God, what is wrong with you people? You know, what the hell have you been doing in here? You know, (laughs) but um, so it's a bit uh, lacking in participation in the upkeep of a group. And um, and that's like living in a family. And it's like it's it could be a a little bit like living in a family, but staying up in your room forever and never coming down. Yeah. Or or after dinner, you split, you just leave right away. And that that one of the biggest differences between live meetings and Zoom is that in a live meeting, if somebody says something that that either is a cry for help or whatever else or something that's struck me in a certain way, I can get up and run after that person and say, yeah, 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 let me tell you. But even like the meeting that we go to, they're all gone within like three seconds, 20 yeah. seconds. And I'm thinking, how about that guy who was talking about the struggle? He say, oh, I hope. So the only thing I can do at that point is hope he'll come back. Or, you know, get him in the chat and send him your number or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I've and I've done that. So I'm, I'm grateful that we have that. Capacity. I mean, we do what you can do during World War Two. Um, there, there uh-huh. were many, many uh, soldiers from all over the world, Europe and uh, mostly in Europe and, and America, who were unable to go to to uh, physical meetings and that kind of thing. And they stayed sober by, you know, the email of the time, uh-huh. which was mail. Um, and they would write each other letters and know that there were people that were that were in the world who were also doing what they do. And so it's on the same principle. You know, they're going to get their chance. They're going to come out, they're going to be overwhelmed, and they're going to have to be, you know, hauling this and helping another alcoholic and being there and putting hands on people and shaking hands and doing uh, doing that kind of thing. Now, it's like you can still, um, like I go to GSR meetings, and it's like there are still Mm -hmm. people who are working with the the technology, with participate and give back in ways, but they're limited, you know. Now, a lot of people have gotten sober on Zoom. They're in for a shock. (laughs) Yeah, well, yeah, and I'm and I'm amazed, and and I I have a couple sponsees who have virtual sponsees. Yeah. They've never met right. these people. They've only talked right. to them online, and some of it's actually working. Yeah, and I I think it's marvelous, and I've made so many new friends. I didn't expect uh, to 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 meet people as lovely as you oh, and big hug, <laughs> big hug. <laughs> we can't necessarily do that, yeah. but yeah. What I know is that my wife 
wants to take a trip to Great Britain in the next two years sometime. And what I know is that when I get there, I'm going to have a number of people to call and say hi to several people to meet at meetings, other people to just give that big hug to. You know, you notice I greet, but I'm a greeter in virtually every live meeting I go to. Yeah, me too. I'm a a greeter. I was a greeter at Pont Street. I I love to do that. And, And the reason I do that is because my greeting, just by saying hello, may be the only yeah, interaction yeah, they really have yeah. with anybody during that meeting. Because yeah. I've seen so many meetings where people go in, they sit down, they pull out their phone immediately, and everybody's looking down. And I'll walk up to them and I'll say, John, do you know Bob? I mean, they're sitting right next to each other. Bob, do you know John? And then they look up and, oh, no, they haven't met him yet. And they're sitting right next to him. So I love the greeting. Yeah, I do that. And one of the things with that, too, is like I had a girl who was having some real problems. She was in depression. She was, mm-hmm. she was sober, but she was, you know, feeling suicidal and she was there and she walked in. I could see her face. I was like, Oh, something's off here. I just went up to her. I put my arms up and I uh-huh. gave her a hug and I just, I didn't let her go. Uh-huh. I just, you know, I, cause I could feel it. She was like, Oh, and I didn't even say anything to her. I didn't say hello. Or I didn't say anything. I just went, you know, and she gave me a hug, uh-huh. uh, it, not just a quick one. She sat there in the hug for a bit, you know, and we do, and it was, it was really nice. And then she just let out, you know, that, that release and what I call, my friend calls leaking air when you got a problem (laughs) and you're sitting there going, you know, um, leaking air. Oh, what's the matter? You're leaking air, you know? Um, And, and she sat down and she went to the meeting then she wrote me a a little text. She said, all day I've been waiting to see you. So yeah. I could just hug you. And I don't really know her that well. You know, she goes, I just wanted to, get, you know, get a high or get a hug from you. And that's all I needed. I felt the same warmness when I came in and you said hi yes. to me, even though I'm used to that kind of thing. But coming into that London meeting and getting getting to meet yeah. you and you doing this today means so much to our community, our AA community. This has been the first time I've done this where I've interviewed somebody I didn't really know. Oh, well, I feel like I kind of know yeah. you because, like, you know, we chit-chat and kibitz, kibitz across. Yeah, we know each other. And, and somewhere along the way, we are, when I say to people, bro, when I call people brother and sister in the program, that's what it is. And I know people, when they introduce themselves, they'll say, hi, family. Yeah. And I yeah. get that. I get it's like the family I didn't have and I have a family, yeah. but it was never yeah, like this. No, so, no. Well, in, enjoy the rest of your day. I'm so happy to see you. I will see you on Monday. And I really appreciate your service that you do to our meeting. And obviously, you know, you're a great example for that. And we all we all we all love you. You've made my day. Well, thank you. And you've made mine as well. Thank you so much. I really do appreciate it. You bet. Well, my friends, that's it for AA Recovery Interviews. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, please share it with your fellow AAs, sponsees, friends, loved ones, and anyone else seeking a rich and meaningful listening experience. Tell them how to subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and other podcast providers. I'd be grateful if you can leave a rating on Apple Podcasts, as it'll help others find us. Visit our website, recoveryinterviews.com, where you can listen to every show, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at recoveryinterviews.com. By the way, to get in touch with Alcoholics Anonymous, simply visit aa.org. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.